Hello, B5 Audio Guide listeners. This is Erica here to tell you that we recorded this episode well in advance, which means that we did not yet know about the untimely death of Stephen First, who played our beloved Veer. He passed away on Friday, June 16th, due to complications of diabetes. We would like to dedicate this episode to his memory. This is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 82 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, The Face of the Enemy. Rising Arc Complication. I think this qualifies as complication, don't y'all? I think so. Ever What's so the difference slightly. between a complication <laughs> and a reveal? Complication and a reveal, and because <laughs> this is a Mike Vehar episode, we told Stephen that we wanted him to join us for this one. Hello, control group. Hi there, everyone. Glad to be on board Babylon 5, or whatever the name of the spaceship is, uh, with you again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, was the, that was the overt reason that we wanted you on this one the covert reason was it's also a big episode for your who i suspect is your favorite character one michael garibaldi as played by jerry doyle it is my 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 vehar did not ping but my radar did ping when his name came up knowing that uh, you wanted to be on an episode before the end of the season and i realized that the season is starting to run out and so once uh, his name popped up and then i realized that we're sort of in the midst of a garibaldi thing i think i think my time is soon and here it is today <laughs> It's it's so good to have you here, and it's so it's always so good to get our Stephen check-ins every uh, episode that we do because, of course, you know Erica fills us in because we're all just so damned curious about <laughs> how you're reacting because you're coming to this so clean slate. It's just adorable. But how's this season actually been working for you so far? Um, well, I'll say this. Um, the last two or three episodes have been possibly my favorite episodes of the entire run. Um, I'm really enjoying this series arc uh, a great deal. So it's it's advantageous that you ask me on at this time because I thought uh, there's been other elements that have been good this series, and I think because of stuff you've talked about uh, about the going on behind the scenes in in series four, with it not knowing there was going to be a series five, I find there are other elements of it that feel rushed. But this uh, this is this is cooking along at, at a at a very nice pace. Should we have told you about this back behind the scenes stuff? Could we? I mean, I I really don't think we could have, and a lot of fans would have known about this behind the stu- scenes stuff in real time. But would you have noticed? Uh, well, let's look at it this way: I didn't buy a computer of my own until 1999, um, which is a year after these episodes that we're watching. I think even aired. So even if I was a fan of the show, watching it at the time, I still wouldn't have any clue as to what was going on behind the scenes or anything with the, you know, the various message boards and whatever is going on in the late 90s. So even if I was a fan, I I would still be oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. So I'm okay with not knowing. Um, I was telling Erica, as I often tell her, that I am looking forward to a bittersweet, I suppose, looking forward to the end of the series as a whole, because once we're done watching it, there will be an unprecedented deep dive into <laughs> the production of all five seasons of Babylon 5, because that's what I enjoy about watching uh, TV and movies, is to see how it was made. That's the doyalist in me, so I'm um, I'm okay. I'm okay with not knowing going into mm-hmm. things, uh, because I know that I'm, I'm going to uncover all that once it's all done. If you hadn't, if you hadn't known about the, you know, the, the the bits of turmoil in season four and the, you know, the, the iffiness of of season five, do you think you would have been able to to tell that it was accelerated, or do you think you would have just not even noticed? Well, I, I, you know what, I think I picked up on an earlier one. I think it was the beginning of season two when, um, um, 
I'm very sorry. I do forget names. I, I, I am I am only a casual fan by by necessity because I I don't dare dive into uh, if I get spoiled. Um, who played Who played Michael Sinclair? Why can't I think of his name? Uh, Michael O'Hare Jeff- played Jeffrey Sinclair. Michael, Jeffrey. see, I do that all the time. <laughs> That's not the first time I take a last name of a character and a first name of the actor and vice versa. Um, I knew that he had gone and that. Uh, you know, a lot of the development between with his character was sort of almost explained in a scene in the, the first episode of season one, which I, I season two rather, which I felt like covered off about three years of, of backstory that they probably wanted to cover in. So I kind of gathered that, and I have to admit, maybe once once um, something comes up, I think you've done a great job in this podcast where you just sort of you know if something appears rushed, then you explain why it appears rushed. I'm glad that you didn't say at the beginning of the series or the season rather that it was oh by the way they didn't know they were going to get um uh, can't you know a, a fifth season out of this so get ready for a lot of rush storylines then that would have kind of like you know serving uh thanksgiving turkey to your guests and saying before you take a bite it's very dry hmm. anyway enjoy <laughs> your meal so uh I, i'm okay with it with an immediate explanation of of uh the reasons why the turkey is dry as opposed to being forewarned hmm. this gives me hints about what to say and what not to say about season five but my <laughs> co-hosts and i will discuss that in spoiler space just to be sure oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> i'm intrigued uh so um uh well with all of that prelude out of the way i think we should get into the face of the enemy and uh here is the reset if you happen to be listening to this podcast sort of out of sequence or is like oh this is a good one or oh hey steven's on let's catch up this (laughs) is the reset for the face of the enemy After President Clark cut a deal with the Shadows and assassinated his predecessor, he continued allying with them and turned the Earth government into an Orwellian nightmare. Captain John Sheridan and the Babylon 5 space station seceded from the Earth Alliance and won a war against the Shadows. Of course, it was more complicated than that. And then Sheridan turned his eye toward ousting Clark after the President started committing atrocities against rebels. Sheridan's loyal security chief, Michael Garibaldi, was abducted by the Shadows, and when he returned, became more suspicious of Sheridan. Garibaldi resigned, and ultimately started working for Mars industrialist William Edgars, who is afraid of telepaths' growing influence on Earth, and thinks Sheridan's campaign is a distraction from the real problem. Garibaldi agrees, and offers to set Sheridan up for capture. That brings us to The Face of the Enemy. In this episode... Things are looking up for Sheridan. He's got his old ship back. But Garibaldi lures him to Mars. Sheridan gets the stuff kicked out of him. We wouldn't say stuff. He's captured, (laughs) but Ivanova promises to continue the fight. Meanwhile, Dr. Franklin and Lita Alexander transport a lot of frozen telepaths to Mars. And Garibaldi reports to the... And Garibaldi reports to the Psycop, who's been controlling his mind ever since he was captured. Bester. Bester drops his control of Garibaldi. He has no use for Garibaldi anymore, and Garibaldi unwittingly exposed Edgar's plan for a telepath holocaust. So Bester figures he can be magnanimous. Besides, no one on B5 would ever believe Garibaldi. And that is where we leave Garibaldi and Sheridan at the end of The Face of the Enemy. Hip deep in stuff. (laughs) Well said. We wouldn't say stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Bless you, Erica, for gifting us with such a great little catchphrase. (laughs) Just trying to keep it family friendly, Mm. y'all. Oh, before we get all Watsonian, let's get Doylist for a bit and have a Mike Vahar check-in. Stephen, what do you like about Mike Vahar's work? And everybody, was this episode up to the usual Vehar standards. I love um, I love all of his work. I think I've said this in the past. I love his work on Deep Space Nine, which which pinged me when I when I saw his first episode here. I thought, oh, who directed this? Oh, it's Mike Vehar. It's that guy who made all those awesome Star Trek Deep Space Nine episodes. Um, he has a very cinematic quality to his work. I find uh, he sort of bursts the boundaries of of standard television. I find uh, also and. And I, I just think he 
he is a great he has a great feel on what a scene should be and how it should be played and sort of adjusts his his camera work to accommodate that fact. If he needs a quiet scene, he'll move the cameras in very close. Uh, if he needs sort of, um, you know, a, a bigger scene, a more operatic one, then it, it'll be a lot further out. Uh, and I, I, in this one, there was, you know, it's more of a very paranoid kind of thriller, especially what's going on with Garibaldi. And so there's a lot of, like, Dutch angles going on and all these, all these uh, like, you know, still images and, and freeze frames and like strobe lighting during the uh, the beat up scene when um, when when Sheridan's getting uh, his butt handed to him in the bar. Um, this this was perhaps one of the I'm not going to say the vehariest episodes because he hasn't <laughs> re- he hasn't really employed that kind of stuff yet. So I, I, he's also a very versatile director as well. That's what I like about him. The husbands have been talking a lot here. Shannon and Erica, <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> um, I'll say, you know, again, not knowing as much about the science of direction and not necessarily being able to point to things and say, you know, this is what they did to do this effect. Um, I still found, as Stephen was saying, that the techniques seem to lend themselves to the story being told. Um the uh, tight close-ups, you know, of, of, of Garibaldi sort of leading up to, you know, eventually finding out that he's been trapped inside this shell of himself for so long. Um, things like that. Um, things like deliberately the, – the setup, one thing that jumped out at me um, is just after Edgars has revealed his, his grand plan, and for the longest time it feels like we're watching – the back of Garibaldi's head, we don't get to see his face as the camera slides over to show that, oh, hell, Lees has been listening and now knows everything, too, before it slides back to circle around uh, to Garibaldi. And then we get the big reveal of uh, or the first step of the big reveal of what's been happening to him. Um, uh, yeah, that's one I, damn camera shot, by the way, which yeah. is one of my favorite <laughs> things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, again, um, the bar scene. um very different from what we've seen on Babylon 5 before, but it it fit. I mean, there might have been other ways to do it as well, but this was, in my opinion, an interesting, captivating way to to show um, to show what was going on uh, while Sheridan was being brought down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, Stephen, you're right in saying that he's a very versatile director, and I think that this episode gave him a lot more space to work with and different types of of reveals and performances to to kind of do more creative things with so you know the the bar scene is a perfect example with the the flashing and the still photography and and the fact that that the main character who's our point of view character in that in that scene had been tranked so you can do some of the weird angles and the lighting Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing and i actually i remember that the first time that i saw it I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Because I, I think I was just I was very young, set in my ways, uh, Erica, who, who saw something that was very different, as you said, from from what Babylon 5 has done before. And I think I was kind of like, oh, you, you got, got grunge your- rock in my B5. I <laughs> I think it was more you got art film in my B5. And because at the time I had just come out of basically film school and I was just really, really sick of that kind of crap. So um, now looking at it, I really enjoy it because I think it is it is interesting and, and, and it feels fresh in comparison. And it, it's a good way to realize what the character is going through. But it took me a long time to get to this point. But that's not the only one. You also have the the Garibaldi reveal stuff at the end where you have just these wonderful, you know, reverse shots of Bester talking basically to the camera and then mm-hmm. just absolutely flat faced Garibaldi because he's still trapped in that, you know, meat prison, basically. So you there there are a lot of opportunities for for interesting camera shots and interesting direction of the actors. And I feel like he, Mike Vejar really stepped up his game and really rose to the occasion. It was, it was pretty great. I can't remember exactly where, but I have seen criticism uh, of the still photography as being 
too much or too obvious or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I may have even said that in the past. That's that's <laughs> a thing that I would have said at one point. <laughs> uh, but he he also uses the still photography on uh, Jerry Doyle in the tube. Uh, but the, yeah, they mm-hmm. had. A, I, I read somewhere that they had uh, they had a guy with a high quality uh, still camera, just sort of in the scrum taking shots mm. at uh, taking shots as it went. Um, it's it's. It's really powerful stuff. So, let's put Mr. Doyle away for a little while. And let's uh, invite John Watson in, and <laughs> let's talk about the story. So, so that what? So that was what was up with Garibaldi all this time. At the time, for those of us who've seen this before, or for those of us who have just seen it for the first time. Did we see this coming? Did we have enough hints to f- know that it was definitively Bester behind the whole thing and what we were and what sort of thing he was out to accomplish? <sighs> I Thinking, I think it was pretty clear that Bester had a hand in it somehow. So I feel like that part of it, it wasn't a big surprise to see him be the one to walk into the tube station and sit down. Actually, it was a little bit of a surprise because we have previously been told that uh, William Eggers has his own private stop. Um, so how did Bester get there? Um, so that's that's my one little niggle with that part. But it wasn't a surprise that it was him who, who had his hand in it. The reason that I think that it was still effective and still worked is because we got quite a reveal from Edgars himself before Garibaldi goes to, to sort of tell all of this stuff to... Uh, to Bester. So I feel like there was there was stuff that even Bester didn't know. So the fact that we were getting this 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 reveal sort of on the other side and that Bester was getting information that was wild news to him made it so that it wasn't any kind of a disappointment in finally having confirmation that Bester was the the guy behind it all along. Yeah, I think I'm trying to think back. I think at the time the first time I saw this um Kind of like, I think I was a little surprised that it was Bester. Um, not that it was Psychops. Uh, I think I was still sort of zeroed in on the fact that the shadows seemed to have, have, have been involved somehow. And, you know, at the time had not, was not remembering as much detail as I am now on repeat viewings that the connection between the Psycor and the shadows uh, I probably had slipped my mind. Uh, so I think at first I was surprised that, oh, my God, what's Bester doing there? And then hearing the explanation is like, oh, my God. Um, what I do remember being impressed by at the time, especially, was how Bester's plan fit what we saw happen to Garibaldi, to the the idea that, you know, just enhancing his natural personality to enough, an extreme enough degree to uh, make him react the way he did, to make him resign his position and um, and start turning against Sheridan, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I remember having all that come together really impressed the hell out of me. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't feel like you know Jerry Doyle never played it as a zombie either. He's never like you know he, he didn't sort of stare off and talk robotically or anything like that. It just seemed like it was a natural kind of shift. So that it was subtle enough that it kind of left you with some doubt, but uh, I think I think it was Erica that told me afterwards because I didn't know who was who was in the room with him in the like the early parts of the season where he was sort of in his little cell. Mm-hmm. I think it was Erica who said, "Oh, did you notice the uh, like the Psycor logo on the the blazer? I think it was or the shoes as well." I yeah, they didn't show the, the face. Um, they didn't show I- the face because wearing like a helmet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, I, and I don't remember yeah. if that was because uh Walter Koenig. Thank you. <laughs> um yeah, I it, it may have been that either Walter Koenig was not a, a Walter Koenig was not available or B JMS did not want to give that full reveal yet, one or the other, but I don't remember which. I I'd prefer it if it was the latter. Uh, I'd mm-hmm. also prefer if uh, my, a big problem I have is um if we'll dip back into the Doyle section again here is <laughs> the actors union because I 
wish in a way that Bester's appearances could be kept uncredited until perhaps the closing credits, but I'm sure the actors uh. union is, is the reason why they're <laughs> up there. So, every, you know, and it comes in big 72-point font. Special guest star, Walter Canning is Bester. You're yeah. not surprised by his appearance. And I, think the the only time that, yeah. I think the only time that they've actually pulled that off is with Michael O'Hare's appearance in The Coming of Shadows in the yeah. video. That's the one time that they managed to save the credit. Because it well, because he he appeared. Well, yeah, that's right. Was he in that? Um, and yeah, then in he, the video, he in, in, that... in, the, in the video message to Garibaldi. Hello, that's right. Yeah, and they and his big appearance in um in that two parter from season three where he's uh he appears in the cold open, so they can still credit him as as normal once the episode actually begins. Yeah. Um. So that that was unfortunate. So I was so once Bester sat down, I was kind of okay. I see what's going on here. But I, I enjoyed. I didn't. I didn't realize to what extent Garibaldi had been taken over. Um, I was really satisfied just because of. I mean, this is why Garibaldi is my uh, my favorite character on the show because he's he is distrustful of everyone that's why he's head of security he doesn't take anything for granted and he has to sort of get to the bottom of things so even even though it sort of looks like he is you know full-on in with um with edgar's you can tell there's a seed of doubt there and so when garibaldi messages sheridan for a while i'm thinking is this actually a double double cross and garibaldi (laughs) is actually unsure about edgar's motivations and he's actually is trying to help you shared in, you know, it was those kind of things which which made this this episode really interesting because even I wasn't sure what was what was you know what what their real intentions were. I I, I quite like that, Ben. Doyle delivers. <laughs> I'm oh, a Doyleist. Yeah. I'm a Doyleist in many ways. When it comes to, uh, to Babylon Five. The other Doyle. Yep. <laughs> so, is it? Does it feel plausible that Bester just lets him know and lets him go there at the end? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> Bester, <laughs> Bester is a vindictive jerk uh, when he wants to be. And he and Garibaldi have been at odds, you know, the entire run of the show. So, yes, this feels totally like something that Bester would do. He does not have to kill needlessly um and it's more fun to know that 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 garibaldi is you know out there suffering unable to go back to babylon 5 unable to communicate with anybody that used to be on his side because it looks like every single bridge that he had has been gone up in flames so yeah I think I see less vindictiveness and and less glee in this and I think more just sort of uh, Almost strategy, because I feel like he, Bester never does anything except to, for a reason, to help, to help his telepaths. And I think that this is sort of a, just a little bit of, of kicking over the anthill in terms of the Babylon 5 folks in general, because he is, he's already done this and he's already, he's already alienated Garibaldi from, from Sheridan and from the, the B5 command staff, which, you know, that's, that's a good thing because Garibaldi is, is a wonderful, tool for them and a great asset and he's managed to separate that if he were to just kill garibaldi then that sort of you know who knows who knows what would have happened he could have ended up being somewhat forgiven or ended up being a martyr if some of the truth had come out Uh, any any of that kind of stuff could happen and having him out there sort of flailing and and you know he at the end tried to send a message to to Babylon Five to explain things, so to have him sort of beating beating against the wall and and be sort of a fly in the ointment with all of the Babylon Five, the the rest of the folks, I think that that actually works to his advantage, just to sort of keep his his enemies off guard and off balance because he he just really wants to to have his telepaths take the upper hand in whatever way he wants, and to have everybody else scrambling is is a good thing. So for two episodes in a row, we've gotten real deep, primarily in dialogue in the last one, about what Eggers catches himself saying and then says anyway, the telepath problem. This is, and, and I, think, mm-hmm. I think Eggers comes across again 
as somebody with a bit of a conscience, but is going to do these awful things anyway. I think he caught himself saying, like, you know, like the Jewish problem, the the telepath problem. Mm-hmm. He recognized what he was about to say, but he went and said it anyway. Um, who's worse? Because in a certain, to a certain extent, you know, he was talking about. Another, uh, he was he was talking about a telepath holocaust, uh, uh, enslaving and killing bunches and bunches of telepaths. Bester is almost a hero of the story. <laughs> Ooh, I mean, I know I hate to say it, but the first I didn't notice it until this time watching. But at the end, I was like, you know, if Bester hadn't done that terrible, terrible, terrible thing that he did to Garibaldi, um, then millions of people would have died so in that respect i mean he kind of is he kind of is a hero because he you know theoretically averted a genocide but that's it's still a really terrible thing to do oh it's edgar's edgar's is the worst i think anytime you craft a virus that will wipe out an entire portion of the population Mm -hmm. i I think i think that's the tiebreaker and who's uh who's worse bester or edgar's yeah uh, I gotta say both, because <laughs> if Bester had the resources to wipe out all regular people, I think he'd do it. Just just because just because Edgar's got there first, I don't think makes him any worse than than Bester. But that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> I th- I think Bester in in letting Garibaldi go is sort of shown his colors that uh, if, if there were no non if there were no mundanes as they call them. Who would he have dominion over? You know, it would just be <laughs> telepaths. He almost likes to have people under his foot and sort of wandering around, and sort of like knowing that uh, that that he is better than them. So I, I could see why he would. I mean, it, that's awful in and of itself. I'm only keeping you around so I can be better than you. Um, <laughs> but at least he doesn't kill them. <laughs> we also get in this episode uh, when Bester gives the explanation. He also uh, between his dialogue and Edgar's as before. We get a really, really clear picture of what the relationship was between the Shadows and President Clark and uh, the Psycor, and we get it demonstrated that Psycor isn't is not itself monolithic. That there were aspects of Psycor that were working with the Shadows. Clark was playing the Shadows and the telepaths off of each other, trying to keep himself in a good position. Really complicated stuff, um, but it seems to, it seems to all hang together. I remember it, in spoiler space a while back, I actually went through the, I, I took pains to go through the uh, machinations of uh, what happened to Garibaldi once he was cellophaned in that uh, in that little shuttle uh, <laughs> that he was found in. But uh, complicated or graspable. Both. <laughs> I mean, just because it's compli- complicated doesn't mean that it's impossible to grasp. I mean, I, after having it all laid out, I, f- I feel like it, it hangs. To- it does hang together, and I think I've got it well enough to to have absorbed this episode. I think something that stuck struck me this time is is going to be slightly tangential. JMS, I think there's a theme that he likes to play with because when you had uh i think it was edgar's making the crack of uh homo sapien versus homo superior uh those of us who have been watching sense eight it's the same argument all over again homo sapien versus in this case homo sensorium for the characters in that show that have these special abilities so this seems to be something that jms really likes exploring this possibility of when you've got Humans that are in a normal range, and then you've got another set of humans who, for whatever reason, can do something extra. Is there any possibility of them getting along? Uh, This seems to be something JMS really, really likes exploring because it's the second time he's done it. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's more than second. Didn't his uh, comic book series Rising Stars do that as well? Yeah. True. Yeah, it's a recurring theme. Also owes a lot of a, a lot of a debt to comics like X Men and other model mm-hmm. other stories there. So, um, you know, but yeah, and, this, and stories going back into the the golden age of, of science fiction. Oh yeah. Uh, so you've got a you've you've got 
uh, population out there with superior power to your own, how awful can you be to uh, keep them in check? You know, that sort of thing. It's it's uh, it's prime material for JMS's muse. Um, so Lita and Steven have a conversation when they get to Mars with a whole bunch of cryogenically preserved telepaths. And number one does not take well to this. And Lita is treated very, very poorly throughout this episode. Lita and Steven have the conversation where Lita says, someday there's going to be a war between telepaths and normals. And she says, I hope I don't live to see it, which is exactly the same thing that Garibaldi said, I think, just in the previous episode, talking mm -hmm. about the same issue. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting it presented from a bunch of different sides. Oh, hey, Steven, you got another Lita episode. I know. She's taking, she's like actually taking a, a, a normal uh, role in these episodes, which is <laughs> fascinating, you know, and they're pairing up with another person, which, you know, there, there's, a, there's a role for telepaths now. I feel, I didn't think that they were just sort of like putting her in the, in the cupboard for this, you know, I, I, I figured slashed hope that she was going to warrant her um, opening credits uh, appearance. Um, it took a little longer than, than I thought, but we're here, um, which is good. And I, and I'm liking it. She's a good actress. I like her character and everything. So too, so I'm, I'm okay with her appearing more. Yeah, yeah. Her, her performance when she's talking about, cause we knew previously she had mentioned that she did like an internship or something with, with Psychops, uh, years before and that she didn't stick with it. She became a commercial telepath instead. And now we get the backstory of, of why. And I felt like her performance as she sort of relived that in front of us and in front of Dr. Franklin was very chilling. It was, it was very convincing. We did something awful because no one would help us. Yep. Yeah. Also, and it, it, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and it adds another layer to all of these issues between uh, telepaths and and regular people. We we get um, Edgar's side, we get Bester's side, and then we get you know Lita's side, which is you know somewhere in between the two. You know, on the one hand, yes, we really wanted normals to help us find this person, and you know, on the other hand, we had to do it ourselves. But oh my God, we went too far. So um, the, it makes a really solid triangle of the different viewpoints clashing in this story. And mm -hmm. the telepath stuff has always has always been subtext, but it's been pushed way far back in the background. Um, it was much more prominent in, say, season one, honestly. Um, going all the way back to Bester's first appearance when he and uh, the other psychop who got dissolved a little later are doing the goofy uh, hovering around Talia Winters and scanning her stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's interesting timing for this stuff to be coming back into the story. And yeah, like wasn't Bester in like one episode a season for the first two years like that? I didn't know much about Babylon 5 going in, but I knew that Walter Canning was in it. And so I was like very surprised at how seldom he was actually in the show. You know, he hosted like the like the, the preview to Babylon 5 that's on the um, season one box set. I thought, wow, he's really in this thing. Awesome. This is going to be fun seeing him. Nope. He's barely in there. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, the telepath storyline and, and thus himself are, are in this more. One one appearance in season one, and then he's mentioned off camera. Uh, he's mentioned um, uh, in the episode where uh, Sinclair is being investigated and court-martialed as being behind all of that. And then one or two episodes in season two, and then he starts showing up with more frequency. Mm -hmm. um, so we've not exactly talked about the nominal star of the show so let's uh let's uh check in with bruce Boxleitner and captain sheridan who makes a pretty rookie error don't you think if i don't know if it's a rookie error i think that i think that he is our you know he's our, our big boy scout sort of hero in a lot of ways and the idea that he would trust Garibaldi, who had been his his good friend, just, you know, just that he would that he would trust someone despite everything. I don't I don't feel like that's necessarily something that I want to look at as a mistake. I feel like that's that's just a part of his character, and 
I'm I'm okay with him doing it. I mean, it sucks that he ended up getting screwed over and <laughs> and beaten up and captured. But the idea that that our main character hero guy is someone who cares about his father and trusts his friend, I'm I'm all right with that. And it's not even that. Um, there, there's enough dialogue in there to point out that Sheridan did go through some channels to check mm-hmm. Garibaldi's information, and his secondary source said, yes, this happened. So, True. you know, so I, I don't think they were trying to make Sheridan look dumb or stupid in believing, just believing Garibaldi. He, he investigated and went anyway. Um, you know, I guess the only stupid thing was not figuring out some possibility of getting back up close enough to help, you know, not going into the bar necessarily, but, you know, finding some way somehow to have somebody uh, there to back him up would have been would have been a smarter thing. But, you know, then <laughs> then the that next was, few episodes apparently wouldn't happen the same way. Yeah, there. Were, I think that there's a definite touch of hubris in um, in Sheridan by this point. He he heads straight over to the Agamemnon. He's confident that everything's going to be fine over there. He starts he actually starts behaving on that ship like it's his ship again before he checks himself. Um, and then he flies down to Mars all by himself in a fighter without any backup, as you said. Uh, side note. Very convenient that he can set down somewhere on Mars and pressure suit or whatever it is. You know, he can he can land and get in civilian clothes to a bar on Mars rather more easily than I would have thought was possible. Um, you know, <laughs> Good point. He probably has connections. I guess so. But, he, I mean, he's flying in in a military plane. I mean, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you got to get him there. You got to get him to the bar so Mike Vahar can work his magic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he sort of he, he sort of leads with his chin. I think he does. I think you're right about the hubris thing, and and I wasn't I wasn't necessarily buying this the whole arc that Garibaldi was saying. You know, he's gotten too big for himself. He thinks he's sort of god because no one else is really backing him up on it. And they, uh, you know, and I never really saw much evidence as a viewer of that. Maybe because we we. We would see Sheridan in his normal day-to-day routine. Uh, but I think over the last few episodes, especially splitting him and, and Delenn up, we didn't sort of have that window in. Because Delenn, you know, <laughs> as a Minvari, sort of humanizes him a little bit. We didn't have that. <laughs> and so he sort of did feel a little more distant because of that over these few episodes. But what made it work for me actually happened in the last episode when Stephen gets um, the message from him, and then, you know, I can't believe that a commanding officer would tell me to do this. We don't know what he tells him uh, at the time. But that, all of a sudden, that sort of made me think, oh, interesting. You know, other people are starting to think this too. And then when um, when Doctor Who alumnus Rico Ross, uh, in his one scene above the <laughs> ship, on the ship in the opening scene there, says that, oh, we've heard what happens to to, um, to crews huh. that you that you capture. They kill them all and replace them with Mimbari. You know, so there's there is this perception going around that we find out in this episode that perhaps Sheridan is is becoming a bit too much for himself. So I I, I think it it was actually well timed. I thought in a season that has had a, had a couple of um, rushed storylines, I feel like that is sort of progressed nicely yeah i thought it was interesting to have on on the one hand um you know sheridan again we get um something we get a scene with sheridan and ivanova where you know she's like you know shouldn't delenn come and take over and sheridan's like no absolutely not you know we we need you we need another human leading this force um because this is, you know, our internal conflict. And then, you know, for the first time, I think Sheridan gets hit face to face with just how damaging the misinformation campaigns have been uh, from Clark's government. You know, that the that the soldiers that are still fighting for Clark are being told that basically he takes over the ships and kills all the crew and replaces them with, with Mimbari, you know, which... You know, to us sounds ludicrous because we, you know, we've seen um, the Alliance's side uh, all this time and not Earth side. Um, and, you know, it takes Mackie to, you know, set the record straight. Uh, so having the back and forth of that, I think um, managing to get both of those bits into the episode to balance was really good. He. I appreciate 
our ISN correspondents、um, <laughs> oh, efforts、God. to make us feel better about poor Sheridan. Oh God! And oh God! That actress that does such a good job <laughs> making <laughs> that character so despicable. <sighs> yeah,、um, but it, brutal, brutal,、uh, brutal depiction of well, police brutality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was unpleasant. She now hosts.、Uh, uh, I, I heard I, this is one spoiler I know for season five that she hosted a show called ISN and Friends. But、uh, mm. um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, letters. We're going to get more letters.、Um, any more? Any more、uh, thoughts about this episode? Because I mean, right now there's not a whole lot of. Speculation the episode leaves us with so much more so much as a how are they going to get out of this one what comes next kind of feeling right well we did get to see Harlan Ellison which was、uh, right his, his little star turn、mm. um, as uh, as the、uh, other psychop he even has a line or two so. I had to point that out to Steven since he doesn't really look like, know what Harlan Ellison looks like. But no, was... I I knew it had to be someone because you don't just give、uh, you know because Babylon Five has somewhat infamously been <laughs> been good at、uh, working around giving an actor lines,、um, and so <laughs> when when that person had a line, I think oh he must be someone I can't quite figure out who. But I'm <laughs> I'm still I'm still bitter about、uh, them not giving the the commercial telepath in the last episode a line because she was so damn good. She、right. was very good. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yep.、Uh, I also had to just things that I sort of chuckled at. Another one was the during the bar scene with you know the the amazing fight. We did have the obligatory scene of a dude being thrown through the front window <laughs> of the bar. Of I、course. was just I I had to giggle because that was that was kind of kind of amazing,、um, and. And yeah, the the other thing that also made me laugh was Stephen's reaction to one of the、uh, just one of the extras as they were panning across the bar in the very 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 opening shot of the bar. There was go ahead and describe it, Stephen. What that was one of the biggest and most alarming mullets I have seen、yes. on television in history. And that was like 1998, so that's even more remarkable that that thing had yet to have been killed off by that time. So, yes. You know, Yeah, the camera's just panning, and Stephen just goes, "Oh dear!" And I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what he was talking about because it was like that was an intense "Oh dear!" And I was like, "Are you talking about the mullet?" And he was just like, "Oh yes." <laughs> well, Babylon Five. I, I think definitely... I think Voltron's blinded me to that because、mm. <laughs> I didn't even register with me. <laughs> well, Babylon Five definitely dated itself with the grunge music in the bar, and then I guess it backdated itself with the mullet. Mm-hmm. Perhaps styles on Mars are different. That could be it.、Mm, yes. Everything comes back around. I guess the mullet is going to be the thing on on Mars. Alas, alas, tragedy—the <laughs> the real tragedy of this episode. Yeah.、Uh, oh yeah, and there was a prisoner reference again. Let's see. We had、uh, Bester saying, "Be seeing you again." Was that it? That yep. The That's the one I got. Yep. 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 Okay. So,、mm-hmm. any other final thoughts before we、uh, e- eject Stephen?、Um, I had a <laughs> couple of things that popped up、uh, in my notes that we haven't touched on yet.、Um, I, I liked the contrast here and there of who's right and who's wrong in various things.、Uh, we have, you know, in our quick visit check in with Delenn. Um, you know, and and Lanier is start you know worries. You know, can, is this good? Is it, is this a good idea? Should Sheridan go meet him? And Delenn just flatly says, "If Garibaldi can be trusted, guess what? She's right. At the moment, he can't." Um, and also, um, the fact that you know Edgar's we see on camera for the first time Edgar's lying to his wife, and apparently she realizes it well enough that she goes and starts eavesdropping to figure out、uh, what's going on. Uh, blowing that relationship、uh, into who knows what's going to happen next there,、um, and I also liked the idea that you know even though he's been shown as this like crafty master supervillain for all of the two episodes that he manages to survive his plan,、um, but the fact that Eggers 
is look it looks like Eggers is wrong about the resistance. Uh, he is claiming that you know once Sheridan gets captured, they're going to be floundering, they're going to be stalling. There's that it's going to buy them time. And no, Ivanova is right there and ready to keep charging right along. She's not going to miss a beat. So um, you know, little things like that. You know of of um, who gets who reads who correctly. I thought was an interesting mm. mix of things going on in this episode. Good point there. Although, just because Ivanova is indomitable doesn't mean that all of the other captains around her who have signed on, some of them in part based on Sheridan's own charisma, might not falter. So that remains to be seen. This is Ivanova. (laughs) Ivanova's God, don't you remember? (laughs) I'm I'm glad that Ivanova um, has been thrust now into the role of sort of captain of the fleet in a way. Uh, I, I feel like she has been kind of floundering herself this season, sort of being like not really having much to do and then like then becomes a newsreader for the past few episodes when she's she's a warrior. She's a tiger. You know, she's second in command. She wants to be out there in the field. And finally, here she finally gets mm-hmm. into it, which is nice. I'm intrigued to see where this goes for the rest of the season. And w- what I'm in- intrigued about is that for the first time ever, really, um, there is very little action happening on Babylon 5. It's on Mars or in space on the White Star. And um, the, the change of scenery, I think, has kind of helped uh, helped invigorate a little bit of, uh, of new life into the series. So uh, those are aspects of, of this one that I liked very much. Yeah, to uh, to the previous point, uh, Stephen, um, it's not just been Ivanova who's been sidelined. Uh, it was such a breath of fresh air to see Londo and Jakar a couple of episodes ago. Um, it's, the story is all about retaking Earth, and that really does narrow the field. And I think the only, the only one that's sort of inexplicable, um, or could have been planned better is Ivanova, because I'm sure that there would have been other ways to really involve her in the storyline than make her a newsreader, but rushed. We don't know if we're getting a fifth season. Mm Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, she's front and center now, so let's see how, let's see what she does with it. Well, I think we need to go into spoiler space, and I'm sorry, Stephen, but I think that means we have to get rid of you. I understand. Uh, I will, it's for um... your own good. <laughs> <laughs> so they tell me. So they tell me, Chip. <laughs> uh, Stephen, of course, is one third of Radio Free Scarrow. He's one half of Lazy Doctor Who. He's one half of Hockey Feels. And he's one half of Castria. That's right. If you have a podcast, or if you want a podcast, you need to talk to Stephen and Erica. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thanks for the plug, Chip. Hey, you're welcome. We'll talk compensation a little later. Um, (laughs) But next time, we'll be doing the episode Intersections in Real Time. Stephen, real quick, what do you think of that title? Sure, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The Babylon 5 episode title generator spits out another one. That's what I have to say about that. Oh goodness! Uh, I'll be. We'll be interested in hearing uh, secondhand how you react to that one, as we are with every episode. Stephen, thanks again for being a part of B Five AG. Thank you very much, Shannon, Erica. Would y'all come with me? Indeed. And he's gone. <laughs> so. Phew. So, I didn't take a lot of notes on, you know, sort of looking forward because, as as we said just before the jump gate, you know, this doesn't leave a whole lot of hints or questions. It's just a big problem that you don't know that they're going to, how they're going to solve it. But- yeah, I mean, the only cup, the only thing I can like definitively point to is, you know, we mentioned in pre-spoiler space, you know, Lita and Garibaldi both talking about how there's going to be a war between normals and telepaths, and I hope I'm not around to see it. And well, uh, guess what? Lita's going to start the war. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yep, that's it the big is- one. Yeah, and I feel like it's. Uh, 
as as we keep talking about the acceleration, yeah, I feel like the the seeding for that has just come all of a sudden really fast and furious. So yeah, and yet he he took the time to do this, mm-hmm. even though the smart play is that you're not going to get a fifth season. True. Mm-hmm. Um. So we are, and and we are never going to get a telepath war actually on screen. Mm-hmm. Um. But it's kind of interesting watching this and seeing this backstory and imagining this brooding stuff. And we're going to have the conversation between Sheridan and Bester at the end where he repeats, we both know there's going to be a telepath war someday. And yet that's just sort of brooding. And if they hadn't gotten the fifth season, they would have gone straight from that to sleeping in the light. So I kind of wonder if... If we hadn't gotten the fifth season, if this stuff would have was really necessary, I feel like even if it's not necessary, it's still kind of an example of of the good world building that right. has made Babylon Five such a good show. Like even though not every little throwaway line has has led to something major in 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 the world of Babylon Five, it's just something that's texture that makes it feel real. Yeah, again, as I said before, you know, the the idea of the triangle, the three different viewpoints uh, about the whole telepath issue in the first place, from Eggers' fear of privacy and Bester's fear of telepaths being hunted down to their deaths to, you know, Lita's, you know, both sides view. Um, her saying that, you know, lends lends to that viewpoint. So, you know, it may not have been necessary, but, you know, again, good world building, good character building is um is in there yeah if crusade had continued in production we would have seen the death of lita alexander oh really in a um in uh, in a flashback involving matheson the psychor um lieutenant uh captain gideon's second in command um it would have been it would have involved a story featuring bester uh, and there would have been a flashback to Matheson encountering um, Lita and a shadowy figure, uh, a shadowy Minbari figure who she calls after Lanier, but the script mm-hmm. very carefully describes how far in the distance and smoky he is. So <laughs> the casting, mm-hmm. the casting economy would have continued on Crusade. I'm just saying, <laughs> but uh, big Psychor installation would have blown up with uh, taking Lita with it. Um, but, uh, that's the, but she, she would have appeared in flashback in crusade. Um, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, she's, I hope I'm not around to see it. Nope. You're going to start it. Yeah. 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 Yeesh. Uh, oh. the telepath, uh, the telepath strategy, the telepaths as weapon thing continues. And mm-hmm. I do love that. I do love how, um, negatively, Marjorie Monaghan uh, reacts to having the, uh, to, you know, she flings open that uh, tarp and there's a, there's a telepath in there. And she says, Mr. There's got a lot of explaining to do. Mm-hmm. Great reveal. But again, doing a great job of setting it up so it doesn't seem like quite the deus ex machina at the end of the season. Yeah, there's a lot of groundwork being laid, which I appreciate. And and again, it, it, the thing, one of the things that JMS really excels at is is showing at least a lot of things from different points of view. Like you were saying, the, the triangle perspective mm-hmm. of the telepath war. And in this case, you know, you get number one being pretty ticked off about this. And while the rudeness of everybody to the telepath is is not cool, the the fact that she is upset totally is because i mean that that makes perfect sense if somebody is coming in that's able to read the thoughts of somebody who's in charge of the mars resistance like that's a huge possible security leak and why should she have any like why should she trust this person just because uh, steven trusts her and i I think that's a bit of a throwback to the fact that that steven is is a doctor and looks to build bridges first um Mm -hmm. instead of thinking in terms of someone who has been having to hide and fight from the shadows for a very long time, like number one has had to, um, mm-hmm. because he, he, you know, like you said, he's like, Lita's my friend. I trust Lita. And of course it's going to be cool. And then he finds out, no, it's not. Um, so I think, yeah, that was uh, very in character for him. 
to to not think of it and you yeah. know for number one to a very in character for her to react like that mm-hmm. um garibaldi poor garibaldi um mm-hmm. bester didn't entirely let him go uh he's got the he's got the asimov <laughs> blocks still in him and when mm-hmm. bester next comes onto the station uh and Garibaldi has an opportunity to confront him. He can't do a damn thing. And that ultimately drives him back into the bottle. So it wasn't all that capricious of uh, Bester to just let Garibaldi know and remember. Yeah, well, you know, again, Bester's not stupid. Like if he if he were to to just let Garibaldi go without taking some sort of measures like that, he might as well be signing his own death warrant. And he he knows that. So uh, I I don't feel like he does it in order to send Garibaldi back into the bottle. That's that's not his aim. His aim is just to keep himself safe. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, and to sort of prevent, you know, he can't predict, he's aware of Lita's presence, you know, he um, cannot predict whether Garibaldi can convince Lita to, you know, which she does, scan Garibaldi and figure out that, yes, he's telling the truth um, to convince uh, him to help uh, get Sheridan free again. So, um, so yeah, it makes sense, it does make sense for Bester to um, take those precautions. Yep, and I, I do think that I... I I find it interesting that, you know, Garibaldi immediately tries to get in touch with Babylon 5. Of course, that's that's a great thing. And I think that if it had been anybody except Ivanova, I would have been annoyed that they just wouldn't even take his call. Um, but because it's Ivanova and she is she has a bit of a temper, she doesn't even want to hear what he and has And the history with Sheridan. I mean, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, this is Sheridan, her friend, her longtime mentor from going way back that yep. is now in, in danger because of Garibaldi. So... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Whereas if it was anybody else who was maybe a little bit more of a uh, a coldly strategic type of person, it might be worth finding out what he has to say. Uh, but but and she Marcus, doesn't even want to. Marcus would have She's taken that to call. He was, right. he was shocked yeah, he makes at Susan. It, yeah, he makes it mm-hmm. clear that, you know, he would have at least heard him out. Yeah. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts about the future? Nope. Um... <sighs> I could not the with the news anchor that, as you said, the contrast between her her brightly assuring the public that you know oh he's being taken care of and everything's going to be fine and he's already showing signs of remorse in contrast to how he is being treated is you know it's going to segue perfectly into uh, the is it the next episode yep. that we have all the torture yeah so yeah yeah without those scenes I think intersections in real time might have come just sort of out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Between this and in the past, where we've seen um, bits and pieces of um, the um, like the Red Scare tactics of uh, people being coerced into pointing the finger at other people and Mm -hmm. public confessions, you know, that's going to be one of the big focuses next episode. Is they've got to try and get Sheridan on camera confessing and apologizing and atoning um, in order to continue to keep up the facade of. of the government's public face. Yeah. Next time will be our There Are Four Lights episode. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm really interested in seeing how, how Stephen likes that and just how he continues to, to like what we've got going on now. Actually, over breakfast today, we were talking just a little bit about Babylon 5, not too much because we didn't want to spoil the podcast, but he he was saying that he just I just really loves this Earth-focused stuff. I mean, as much as he enjoyed some of the other things, like he he's like, this is my favorite part of Babylon 5. And like, I had to bite my tongue to not say, well, it looks like you might like fifth season more than some people do. Because that's, <laughs> well, that's I don't know. I mean, on. it's not very Earth centered, though, because it's, well, te- it's the first half is is sort of telepath politics, but it's all happening mm-hmm. pretty much on the station. The that's second true. half is primarily Spatial politics with the Centauri and the League of Non-Aligned Worlds, um, and that's the part that more people prefer about season five. I think most people sort of, when they think season five, they just shut down over Byron, and, mm-hmm. that, and that's it. 
but uh, I think I think he'll like that stuff, possibly more. Yeah, because it gives it gives uh, Peter Jurisic and Andreas Katsoulis a lot more to do. We're really not going to see much more about of of Londo and Jakar until the uh, until the finale of the season. When they that's sad when they form the when they form the alliance, but again, mm-hmm. it's an Earth story, and there's only so much you can do. So, last my last thought before we go is: I think now we have direction in what we can and can't tell Stephen about the backstory <laughs> on season five, because I think uh, it is safe for us to tell him that yeah, there were contract troubles, and he couldn't have um, we couldn't we couldn't have Su- Susan Ivanova back. Um, although hopefully that will lead to a very nice surprise when she shows up in Sleeping in Light. But um, I don't think we should tell him that JMS had all of his notes for season five thrown out by a clueless housekeeper at a uh, British Babylon 5 convention between season four and five, and that um, a lot of his... A lot of his writing was literally pitched out the window, and the basic outlines that he had for the season weren't all that in-depth, so he had to pretty much start over. And I think that, that reveals itself in the plotting, but I think that would probably be too much information for Stephen. That is, this turkey's really dry, don't you think? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose it could be. Uh, we will take your, uh, we, will, we will follow your lead, Erica. The care and feeding of precious first-time Babylon 5 viewers. They need caretakers. Very true. (laughs) And that is the face of the enemy. Next time, it's Bruce Boxleitner and some guy in a room. (laughs) Directed by John LaFia. I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be lots of... Well, I was going to say it's going to be lots of fun to watch. It's not going to be lots of fun to watch. It's no. going to be gripping television. Gripping television is not always fun. The stuff yeah, will hit the fan. True. <laughs> we don't mean stuff. No. And <laughs> so, on that note, this is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Be seeing you. Be seeing you.